Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I am super, super excited to have the phenomenal Christopher Fries on the show today. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thank you, Ruth. Appreciate it very much. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Christopher has a phenomenal career. He served as the executive director of the Mississippi Department of Human Services um, in the FBI. Um, during the end of Governor Phil Bryant's tenure. Before that appointment, he served, sorry, he served 23 years with the FBI, um, the Fe Federal Bureau of Investigation, retiring as the special agent in charge of the FBI's Jackson Division. And during his tenure, he oversaw all the FBI operations and administration work in the state of Mississippi. Since January 2020, he's dedicated his time to helping leaders succeed by understanding the impact of trauma on trust, embracing trauma-informed leadership to improve trust and demonstrating how the science of hope can tra transform trust. And I am just so excited to talk to you uh, today in the context of the topic brain health and how we can help people really unchain their pain, particularly given your journey has been really so different to the journey that some people you know the Joe public um, go on so I, I'm really excited thank you for for joining us um, so first question Christopher to yourself could you just introduce yourself to people and just let them know who you're really serving now what your vision is and and what really is your passion now in life yes I will thank you very much you know, I, I've arrived where I am at this point in my life very non-traditionally. Uh, I am at the present moment going back to school at the Oklahoma University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, to work on my PhD. And so, as you mentioned, I spent a career in the FBI and a little bit of time at the Department of Human Services. Uh, but right now, I'm studying about the science of hope with uh, one of the preeminent leaders in that area, Dr. Chan Hellman. Uh, and trying to understand how that science can help people in many different ways. Uh, and so, again, most of my career, professional career, uh, was in law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's been a big change for me to sort of step back and think about and see things a little bit differently uh, and then try to find a way, because what based on what I saw, I was so moved by it, I'm trying to find a way to to help people in a meaningful manner. Oh my goodness! Is it's so needed uh, now in in today's society, given the situations that we've been in, and obviously how the world has evolved and changed right. since you know really nine eleven, and and the it, it, just the heightened awareness of what people are subjected to in terms of not only social media influences on their on their perception of hope. Mm -hmm but also the, the, the underlying uh, terrorism elements that we, we often, yeah. um, unfortunately, have to, uh, to deal with or we witness third-hand through, through, the, through the media um, and also just the current COVID situation. So I'm just so interested to explore the, the science of hope in, in the context of brain health. But before we dive into that really exciting topic, I'd love to understand what inspired you what 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 inspired you to to join the the fbi in the first place because it's not a 
typical career pathway that, yeah. that one chooses. <laughs> I, I'd like to say I had this great story and that it was a lifelong dream and, and it all came together at one moment, but it was, it was really kind of benign in many ways. So I uh, you know, graduated high school, went to college, studied to be an accountant. And at one point I actually got my CPA license uh, to be an accountant. But I realized uh, working for the state of Tennessee where I lived at the time that, you know what? I'm not a very good accountant. I re I'm really not sure this is where I want to spend my life. And, and so within uh, the division of state audit, they had a little investigative unit, about four people uh, investigated from a non-law enforcement perspective, complaints that the state received on everything from contract fraud to little public corruption to uh, theft of funds. And, and there was an opening I was able to go. So I had uh, a case. There was an attorney. Mm -hmm who was uh, hired by the Department of Transportation to help the trans Department of Transportation buy right-of-way. So when the transportation needs to put a road through your property, they have to pay you fair market value for it mm -hmm. and take it. So they would use this outside attorney to uh, take care of the legal transactions. Well, she was taking some of that money mm -hmm. and stealing the money uh, and sort of kiting it and, 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 and going down that road. And we'll, we found out about it. We started investigating it. And because most of the money in Department of Transportation is federal money, mm -hmm. the local FBI agents uh, from the office there in Nashville, Tennessee, where I was at the time, came out to visit. And I shared with them what we were doing. And, and over the course of a couple of days, one of the agents uh, said, hey, you look like you know what you're doing. Have you ever <laughs> thought about a, a career in the FBI? And I said, nope, not until now. He said, let's go to lunch. <laughs> and, and so and so we got in his car and uh, we we went down uh, the highway to go to lunch. And and he's driving kind of fast. And I think he turns his siren on and then the lights on. And it's just like a kid in the candy store. Right. And all of a sudden, I, this is I got to do this. This is awesome. Uh, and, and and so I applied. And and let me just tell you that in the course of, of my 23 year career, I might have turned lights and siren on about three or four times. So uh -huh. <laughs> he, he was definitely pulling the right strings where he got me interested in, in being in the FBI. But wow. um, it, it really didn't pan out the same way. But but it was great. I, I joined the FBI in 1996 uh, as a new agent. I uh, went through Quantico, that as new agents do, and then started uh -huh. my career in Richmond, Virginia, where I used my previous experiences to investigate public corruption matters and uh, money laundering and other sort of what we call yeah. white collar crime. And, and, wow. and so that's really, that's really my foray into the FBI. Uh, I, I worked with people who truly it had been their lifelong dream. Yeah. Uh, they'd watch the TV shows and that was something that they were excited about. But uh, at the end of the day, we all came together that first day and, and started our journey uh, into this marvelous experience of the FBI. Yeah. Uh, do you know, I, I met when I was in Washington, D.C., I met someone in the FBI when I was staying in a hotel and and he uh, shared with me books he'd written about his experiences over wow. in in um, Middle East. Um, and I was just fascinated about, you know, the inside workings of, of the FBI and obviously uh, being a reservist in the military it was something that <clears throat> piqued my interest yeah. and my interest was 
peaked at a very young age when my brother was going through um, cadets as a, a, a Air Force cadet. So uh, I, I found it fascinating. I actually can really relate to right. the, the drive that you went on because I, when I was in the States uh, much later on, I, I was offered a, a ride along by a San Diego police uh, officer and um, had to sort of sign my life away right, uh, right. and got shown, you know, this is the, these are the semi-automatic weapons. This is how yeah. you unload it. Uh, don't worry. Obviously, you're military. So if you ever get in a, a shootout, you know, this is what we're going to do. And I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness, we're going to have like a, a massive incident, you know, an international issue if, I, if I'm seen as sort of using a weapon in the US, a British Army officer. So, yeah, no, anyway, I can really relate to the ride along. It was just absolute, absolutely phenomenal. But the, yeah. but the, but the reality of the situation was was obviously for the police officer very different and I'm sure yeah. for your situation you know you're you were coming across uh incidences as as many people do in the forces that the general public are have very little awareness of but you obviously have a very heightened awareness of as to what's going on under under the radar as it were yeah, you, you. I think you find that in the law enforcement profession, you can't help but sort of mm. see the world a little differently mm. because of the, the people you're engaging with and the problems that, that they struggle with and, and that they, uh, the actions they take uh, that cause them to intersect and interact with law enforcement. And so you just, there's this repetitiveness uh, of, of sort of the same people, the same types of people, the same problems over and over again. All of a sudden it, it does sort of skew jade the way you see the world mm, mm. and I, I remember that um, you know i was a new agent i've been in about five years when uh, you mentioned 9 11 earlier mm. and i was in richmond and so when the pentagon was hit on on 9 11 i was part of the evidence response team out of richmond wow. and, and you can imagine we're trying to draw as many resources as possible and and so the, by the morning of september 12th while the pentagon is still smoking fire department still trying to put out a little bit of the, the fire, we roll in uh, to start doing our work in the recovery and the evidence gathering. And, you know, since we're talking a little bit about brain health, that might have been the first time that uh, I really felt like my brain health was uh, being affected. And it's just one example of what I know other law enforcement officers face mm. on a regular basis. But because of you seeing the trauma, before you, uh, the results of the horrific act, and you're in it day in and day out for you yeah. know, two to three weeks, and and all of a sudden, you know, you you're the feelings of being overwhelmed, uh, and and sort of that despair and, and uncertainty, it just really starts playing on on you. And uh, I remember as I look back now, going, that was a, a major event. Obviously, we all experience experience yeah. the after effects, but for me having been right there and sifting through ashes and remains so forth. Mm. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a moment uh, I'll probably never forget. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you for sharing that because I think, you know, it, we see it on the, on the news. We, we see it, you know, played out in, in social media and we, we obviously remember it, but we don't, uh, the, the general public, unless they're, they're actually physically there in the situation, don't, get the full brunt of the 
the experience of all the senses that get triggered and you know our our senses that are connected into our brain we have the 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 nasal sense is the one that uh, goes straight to our amygdala uh, and that obviously incredibly uh, powerful in terms of some of the experiences that people witness particularly one you've described and so it, it bypasses any anything else and, and, and immediately triggers you into a fight, flight, freeze or defensive rage. And how you're able to to deal with it is obviously dependent on what you've experienced in that situation, what you've right. experienced before. And when you've never experienced anything before like that, it, it's it, it's going to put you on uh, a high alert and, ma- and make it incredibly memorable for for all the all the wrong reasons um and i think we don't pay enough credence to to that for the emergency services the 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 police forces and 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 also the people that you know are involved in that incident who who are victims of 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 the incidents as well and really acknowledging that people need time to decompress that's right. Much the same way we we do from a military perspective, is people need to need the time, but they also need the tools to help to help them decompress. Because time isn't a healer uh, for for trauma. Um, it, it it can often exacerbate it. It's much like leaving a broken leg um, yeah. and hoping that time will heal it. That's yeah. it doesn't work that way. That's right. That's and right. it certainly doesn't work that way from a you know, from an emotional trauma or a mental trauma um, uh, or, or a spiritual trauma, you know, in terms of losing your job, if you will, you know, losing your sense of purpose, that can be traumatic, particularly with COVID, um, is we need, to, we need to equip people with the right tools mm-hmm. um, so that they, that they have that opportunity to heal as soon as possible after the experience. Absolutely. And, and- you know, at the time, we we probably didn't have the right tools. Uh, mm. You know, we're looking at what just twenty years ago. Yeah, that's a long time. Uh, there's a lot that we've learned in the in, since then, but uh, I wish we'd had some of those tools. And and I'm grateful that we do now have many of them, and that people are able to get help. And uh, you're, you're right; you have that uh, a major um, event. You know, it's a sort of a one-time major event that that has an effect on you, and then. Uh, all the other times in my career, throughout my career, it was usually uh, the repetition of a lot of small events, mm-hmm. uh, particularly as I saw that in other people, right? The, the yeah. persistent trauma, uh, consistent trauma that they have day in and day out playing yeah. playing out in their lives. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, and I look back and go, yeah, they, did, they didn't get the help they needed either when they were young. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. what are we doing for them? Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, to recognize that trauma stacks. You know, yes. it's like it's like a you know a, a tower. Uh, it stacks like a Jenga block, yeah. uh, and eventually it becomes unstable uh, and topples over. And people, you know, that's when people crash um, because they because they can't keep stacking anymore. The, that's the, right. the towers become unstable, and it's important that they take action as soon as you know, as soon as they feel that someone's pulling the piece out that that they can put it back in again and and mm-hmm. and rebuild that part of their mind uh to to renormalize it to, to to make it stable and you know bring back down that 
um, excitation level that we have as a result of trauma. You know, I was I went to school, as I mentioned earlier, to be an accountant. Right. And so I'm sort of focusing on business and and that sort of thing. And uh, it's only been recently within the last probably four or five years that, you know, I start hearing words such as poly victimization and, you know, complex trauma. And and I, you know, I've considered myself fairly well educated and Mm -hmm. informed, but this is a whole new world. This is a whole new way of thinking and seeing and applying uh, things that up until a certain point, I, it had never occurred to me or uh, that I needed to know that or that mm-hmm. that it would play such an important part or could play such an important part mm-hmm. in the work that I was doing in law enforcement at the time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's it's a it's definitely a journey. It's definitely something that uh, it's great about your your podcast here, your video cast that, you know, sharing these ideas and understandings around brain health, uh, because, yeah, we definitely need it because it, if you didn't grow up with it, if you didn't invest yourself in studying it, you may be like me. You didn't fully appreciate it and appreciate yeah. the tools that are available for us. Yeah. And to be clear, I had no concept of brain health myself personally. You know, even having done a degree in medical imaging, I uh, it wasn't until I had a traumatic experience in my own life that I really had to go on a transformational journey there was you know I was for me I was at the bottom of what I was prepared to tolerate um uh, and really I really wanted to climb the way out of the hole that I was in Uh, and brain health became part of my learning uh much like you're doing a PhD now but you know I had to educate myself in it because nobody talks about the brain Uh, They talk about an ethereal concept of mental health, which is really important. But the trouble is that we label ourselves in the conversation by the language we use. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we actually physically talk about the organ, like we talk about heart health uh, and health of our bones. Exactly. uh, We don't talk about beats per minute health uh, and and label us as being at fault. We, We talk about the heart, the organ. And, and the group, what I think is really important within, in the context of the, the brain health discussion is that we can have open dialogue, we can have open conversation about brain health because we're talking about the brain. We're not yeah. talking about us. Uh, and that is really important for me is to, to really open the dialogue and, and make it a, an easier conversation to have because we, we, we remove the labelling um, associated with it and really focus on what the root cause of of the problem is and often the mm-hmm. root cause goes back to to trauma and I know you we, this show is all about brain health um, what for you um, given we're talking about this now does optimal brain health mean for you personally given the given the journey that you've been on you know I thought about that and for me I think optimal brain health uh, is really characterized, uh, captured in one word. And for me, that's peace, uh-huh. right? So for me, I think we have a lot of this chaos, a lot of this noise, anxiety, the stresses, the poor relationships that we have with each other, the work environments, the, the spiritual environments, uh, even sports, right? Everything we do, mm. it just seems to be a lot of chaos and noise. And, and our brains are fighting this, for attention and we're, we're trying to find ways 
Uh, you've heard the words about being resilient and have good well-being. And, and we're trying, we keep going to that because I'm pretty sure our brains are going 90 miles an hour and we're, we're just looking for peace, peace with ourselves, yeah. peace with our families, peace, peace with our communities. And, um, and, and so I've really spent some time trying to think about that. And, and, and for me, that's what, what has given me uh, some sort of peace of mind is this idea that I just want to be at peace. Uh, because then I think I'll be at my most healthiest state. Mm. Do you know, I've never heard anybody describe it like that, and I think that's incredibly powerful. Um, we use the three words in Havening typically to help people, and it's safe, peaceful, and calm. Yeah. Uh, and it's so important that we bring that brain down, like you say, as it's you know whizzing around 100 miles an hour trying to deal with all the chaos that we've yeah. created in today's society. And we really need to just give ourselves, I like to say, permission to breathe yeah. uh, and permission to feel. Uh, and we don't give that to ourselves enough. You know, yeah. e even the sleep we used to have 100 years ago was was nine hours on average. You know, we're, we're down to seven or, or, or less, depending on what your, your, you right. know, your work situation is. We, we're really disadvantaging ourselves in a brain health perspective because of the lifestyle that we've created in the 21st century and and some and obviously for some people that lifestyle just has to pause so that they can get some peace and recalibrate yeah we get we've, their brain back you know we talk about people and we're and, and maybe we've all had this experience uh but we know people who we need to find some type of substance to help us sleep. Why? Because yeah. we can't get to sleep because our minds are always racing. And it doesn't yeah. mean that, you know, we're just focused on, on work and have some big day ahead of us. And that's, I'm talking about the regular routine. We can, we just never being able to, to sort of re-regulate ourselves because of either the past traumas we've experienced or the current traumas that we're involved in. Yeah. Uh, and so many people are robbed of that, as you've, said that that state of peace where you can have good sleep you can get real well rested and and re-energized uh and feel good about the next day not that the next day is going to be you know more chaos yeah uh, yeah and, and, you know we've talked to, i remember when i heard uh i think it was dr bruce perry so he's pretty well known uh in the neuroscience and in the, uh -huh. in the mental health field and and I heard him speak one time, and, and I think uh, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, uh, Surgeon General in California, has said this as well. We talk about our heartbeats, you know, when we have some uh, type of traumatic event, you know, it goes up. And then if we're lucky, yeah. you know, it, it'll come right back down because we have our friends, we have our family, we have, you know, we're able to, to re-regulate pretty quickly. And, you know, and, and then we have the, the stress that kind of goes up and stays up for a while. Uh, but after a short period, it comes back down. But as as Dr. Nadine Burke Harris has said, what happens when your trauma, your your stress goes up, your heart rate goes up, and it stays up, right? Yeah. And it just stays there for days and weeks and months, and you never get reset. And then all of a sudden, that's where all these adverse childhood experiences, the childhood trauma, the way our brains, you know, are formed and how they function, uh, get sideways. And then we we're continually struggling with that uh, because it's affecting our decision making. It's affecting our ability to to have good cognitive, clear thinking. 
Uh, and it all relates to primarily, probably, the trauma that we've experienced and the, and the stress and anxieties that come with that. Uh, and it's, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, how do we get our, our health back uh, mm-hmm. in a way that, as you said, if we had a heart problem or a leg problem or something else, we'd go to the doctor, we'd seek out a way to, to address it. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet we, we self-medicate and we struggle with it often mm-hmm. day in and day out. Yeah. And, I, do you know, I think it's really important, you know, because we often forget that our brain is, you know, in the context of the old science approach, the brain was separate to the body. Yeah. Uh, but actually, obviously, it's an essential. It's the engine yeah. of, of of everything about us. And when we when you talk about the fact that, you know, we get to it, we can get ourselves to a state where we're always on. Mm-hmm. That, that's when our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is, is fired up and just working too hard. It's like we've opened the throttle on the on the car and we've put our foot to the yeah. floor and we can't take our foot off uh, and, right. and we end up wearing everything out. And it isn't until somebody yanks the handbrake or, or slams on, on the brake and said, right, stop, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that that accelerator gets unstuck. Uh, and we can take it to maintenance, you can take our engine to maintenance and get it maintained, but it's knowing how to maintain it. And it's very easy for people to wear out their adrenal glands because yeah. of this constant stress. And often people don't take the time, you know, we self-medicate to, to deal with the immediacy of the pain, of the emotional pain, the, the overwhelm, the, the, that feeling that the accelerator is always on. Um, Rather than acknowledging that accelerator is on, we 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 turn to alternative means to ignore it. That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, so we just forget that with fact that we're driving too fast um, uh, until somebody eventually gives us a ticket. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, or yourselves come along and say you broke the law. Right. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about this. What's causing you to do that? Um, and we realise actually we need. We, we need to kind of downregulate our brain and uh, and bring it back into balance. And that balance can be different for everybody because yep. everybody's brain is, is unique. So we need to understand how our brain is functioning, what parts of our brain are working too hard. Like you say, what parts of our heart, you know, our heart mm-hmm. can be race really fast. The same is true in our brain. Our parts of our brain, especially from a trauma perspective, is – we can have racing parts of our brain, particularly um, the amygdala, which goes into right. the, you know, uh, overactivity in that part of our brain, as well as our thalamus, which is resp- a deep limbic system, which is responsible for our, uh, our, our, our emotions, our mood control. And, um, and it's just really important that we take that time to allow people to learn about their brain um, and, and image it in a way that people can understand it's not them that's at fault. It, their brain is in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and let's find a way through to help them. And I'm really interested you mentioned the word peace because I'd love to know, did you feel that, you know, in the, through your career within the FBI, did you feel you were able to maintain that sense of peace for yourself or I know we've talked about one situation where obviously that that state of peacefulness was was quite disrupted. But how how did you 
how did you observe that state change, that peaceful state change throughout your career? Because obviously it was quite a long tenure yeah. within the FBI. You know, I think that the, what really allowed me many times, not all the time, but many times to deal with that, that chaos, that tempo was uh, the outside environment I created. Mm-hmm. Right. So I tried very hard to leave my work at work oh. uh, and at home, you know, I had my family, I had my friends, I had some out- extracurricular activities that I engaged in. And I, I tried hard to uh, disconnect myself from what I saw on an everyday basis and remind myself that people, uh, that all people aren't the type of people I see regularly. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that there is a difference, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it became harder in, in many ways as I promoted up through uh, the organization. All of a sudden, you take on more and more responsibility, and uh, the phone calls come regularly because you get more you and know, more volume. Exactly, and and yeah. even you know after hours, and uh, you've got to help people with decisions or make decisions or uh, respond in a way and that you didn't have to before, and and it was it became harder. And then if you haven't built uh, the relationships outside of work, then I think it's a, it's a struggle. And I think that's oftentimes why we, we feel better sometimes of going to work than we do at staying at home or going to work. But in, instead of doing something outside of work, because we've been, we've learned to build that relationship with our coworkers or maybe it's a partner mm-hmm. you have or, or someone that you become friends with and you see them eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And then you go home, you know, and, you got to re-engage. And I, I saw this most play out uh, along the lines of trust. Yeah. And so I talk about three things in, in my work with leaders and with other individuals, and that's trauma, trust, and hope. Uh, and, and the part about the peace, when I think there's a lack of peace, uh, is because there's trauma that has affected your relationships with people that mm-hmm. contributes to more trauma. Uh, yeah. because there's more dysregulation because we, we struggle to trust each other. You know, yeah. one of the things, again, I learned, you know, later in life is that we, and it, it's intuitive. You, I guess I knew it, but until someone sort of pointed it out, you know, we're designed to be social creatures. We're designed to have, you know, relationships with people. Uh, and it's all, we can only do that if we've built trust. But if we experience the trauma in our lives early on, uh, with the people that we should have trusted, maybe it's our parents yeah. or other adults, mm-hmm. and they somehow violated that trust, then what makes you think that when I show up at work or when I'm trying to build a relationship with you that I'm just going to automatically, instinctively be trustful? You've got to yeah. earn that trust because everybody else in my life has been untrustworthy. Yeah, And so it's just this vicious cycle of how do you do that? And uh, we do it all. I tell people we do three things with trust. We're either building trust, spending trust, or breaking trust. Yeah, it's like uh, a bank, isn't it? It is. It is. And so <laughs> the bank of trust. We, we don't appreciate that until we wake up one day going, I wonder how come I don't trust that person or why don't they trust me? And and we realize that we've been doing a lot of withdrawals instead of a, a yeah. lot of deposits into that uh, metaphor of the bank. But uh, yeah, and so the people I engaged at work uh, that, that because they were committing some type of crime that brought them to our attention. Uh, right. It's easy to fall into that trap of 
well, I can't trust anybody or nobody's trustworthy. Yeah. Every time I look yeah. around, somebody's defrauding other people or committing some act of violence against them. And that's just the way people are. Yeah. Right? They're just the way people are. And then we start hearing other people echo that chamber around us. And so we start believing everybody yeah. must be that way except me and you. And I'm not so sure about you. Yeah. Uh, right. And so what do we do to break that cycle? What do we do uh, to help our minds sort of heal in a way that, uh, we can start to trust each other. And what's that, what's that look like? Uh, yeah. So that's, that's where I think at the end state is that idea of peace. Uh, but there's things we got to do to get there. Yeah. Do you know, I think that's so important because a lot of people don't talk about the fundamental of trust mm -hmm. in, in order to rebuild people and to rebuild the networks, the neural networks that you have in your mind because if you've, if neural networks have been conditioned in an environment where there is no trust, that's right. Uh, the more lack of trust you experience, and we don't necessarily talk about how our brain evolves as a consequence of our surroundings, but the reality is if you're in a surrounding that there's no trust, in order for you to survive, you're going to work on the premise that you can't trust anybody. Uh, because that aids your survival. That's yeah. how we that's how we evolve as humans. And the, the greater the safety we can create for for people, and that starts with children at a very young yeah. age, is creating that emotional safety net for kids to express themselves so that they can trust you to be there for them in the way that they need you. And it's the same as we mature as adults is trusting people um, to really be there for us and support us. And I don't think I'm just I think it's really such a key point that we don't talk about enough in the context of trauma is this breaking of trust. Yeah. You know, people people don't want to talk about trauma. Right. I mean, we, we don't want to talk about the weighty, heavy measures. I mean, when I go and try to engage leaders in the organization. Look, they want to talk about burnout. They want to talk about turnover. You know, they want to talk about performance issues. They want to talk, they're okay talking about trust, but I'm not so sure I want to talk about trauma. Trauma seems kind of weighty and heavy and, and too difficult. And so, too difficult. Too, too, right. too scary. It's like, it, oh. Very much. And, and, and so it's like, and oh, that's kind of a personal issue, right? I mean, that's, that's you. I don't, can we even talk about it? And so I try to find ways to engage individuals in a way that might be a little bit more open-minded and, and we we gravitate toward trust because we see that play out in our lives every day we understand trust and as you said the the breaking of trust and the building of trust and so uh, trauma allows me to explain not every i don't ever say that trauma is the the answer to every last problem but it allows yeah. me to open the door and explain why we struggle with trust yeah. And if you want to understand trust, let's understand trauma enough that we can we can have that conversation and, and better appreciate. And then obviously, as I said, at the end, it's like, OK, what do we do with that understanding now? How do we actually go about building trust? Uh, and for me, it's that strategy and the framework of hope uh, that, that gets us there. But mm. yeah, trust is fundamental. If, if the negative side of that's the trauma, then to me, the positive side of trust is hope. Uh, but you got to get people willing to engage in the conversation. Uh, and we know when it talks, comes to mental health and other issues, that is probably one of the biggest challenges, just getting people to feel comfortable talking mm. about it.
Yeah, and I think it's, uh, I, I wholly agree. And I think that trust piece is so important in the workplace. You know, we, we've come into a space of the digital age mm. uh, where we expect people to work remotely now because the sure. reality is that's what they have to do. Uh, and some people have come from a work environment where that trust is significantly lacking uh, yep. because the culture hasn't fostered the fundamental and, and trust is a core value for me uh that the culture hasn't fostered that value uh to uh, empower people to do the work that is necessary and get and get the job done and it and disempowers people mm-hmm. when that trust isn't present it, it take people become uh defensive because that's, that's how right. we survive i don't know what it's like in the uk but there's been a number of media reports about uh, people not wanting to go back to the office, yeah. right? They, they enjoy being at home and working from home. Now, I'm sure there's a part of that that just says this is more comfortable working from home, but I'd like to do some research and maybe there's some out there uh, that I haven't seen yet, but I'm pretty sure that a significant portion of the people who don't want to go back to the office, it's not so much COVID. It's the fact that at the office, the culture. There's a lot of unpeace, uh, unpeaceful people, a lot of yeah. chaos, a lot of noise, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Why do I need to put up with that? Because at least COVID has shown us that when we do work from home, we can still get our jobs done. And if we can do our jobs without having all this uh, stress around us, this this trauma, this craziness, uh, then, yeah, why would I go back to that? Uh, mm. and, and so I don't think it's just I mean, I, yes, part of it would be a COVID related issue. But at the end of the day, I think we're just. We're so unhappy and and are not at a place of peace, a state of peace that we're longing for it. And we're longing for those relationships because it's hard to trust anybody. It's hard to interact with them. Uh, And so I I think it all sort of comes together. And when you start seeing the pieces and understand things uh, and see a little bit differently, we see how this plays out uh, in our in our regular lives, our daily lives. And what what really triggered you to to know the the really important aspect of trust uh, and its relationship to trauma in terms of your experiences was there was was it was did it evolve this this need to really explore the concept of trust uh, yeah. and to build it or or was it a particular key event where you thought whoa uh, this is it I think there was it's it's part of an evolution and so mm-hmm. my evolution starts a little bit like this. So I've been in the FBI at this point 20 years, and I, I promote to the special agent in charge uh, for the office in Mississippi. So I arrive in Mississippi, and in my position, I'm responsible for everything that goes on in the state. And the heck, the uh, capital of Mississippi is Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi. And Jackson at the time uh, still does, but has a lot of a lot of problems. And in my role at the FBI, I think, well, how can I help? How can how can I help the FBI? Uh, solve the problems. And I got to reading some articles and talking to people and realizing that juvenile justice, uh, juvenile, excuse me, juvenile crimes was very high. There's a lot of gun violence, a lot of other violence among juveniles uh, relating in an increase in their engagement with the juvenile justice system. Mm -hmm. And so I remember going uh, with a good friend of mine uh, to a high school and he said, Chris, we're going to, uh, talked about 10 young men 
who have been making some bad decisions, right? They're, they're sort of in trouble in school. They've got some challenges and we're going to see, I'm going to talk to them, try to figure out if we can help them in some way. I said, it'd be great. I'd love to go. And so we showed up and I remember arriving at this school. It's the inner city school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just going through the neighborhood, you're looking around, realizing this is a very socioeconomically depressed area. And you arrive at the school and there's 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 fences around it. And I'm looking up and I'm seeing, you know, some broken windows. I walk up to the front doors and they're all dented and in a little bit disrepair. You walk into the school and there's a school resource officer, you know, in a uniform and a, and a gun. You walk through a magnetometer to see if you're carrying some type of weapon. And mm-hmm. uh, that's even before you really get into the school. And so we walk in and, and the some of the tiles and the floors were chipped the paints peeling on the wall a little bit and and we make it to the library where we're going to engage these young men and i remember we're sitting there and just looking at these young men who were probably sizing me up uh trying to figure out who this guy was in the suit Uh, (laughs) i certainly i certainly didn't fit in uh with any of the demographics in that in that area and I remember my friend told me that we're going there to try to help these 10 young men. But in the end, I, you know, I realized it was actually what they said that they probably had a bigger impact on me than I ever had on them. And, and the first young man, one of the young men said, you know, we've only been in school a couple of months and I've been suspended from school longer than I've been in school. So he'd been out in the first two months, he'd been out of school longer than he'd actually been in school. And then the second young man uh, said, you know, I'm tired of disappointing my mama. I knew exactly what he meant, right? Making bad decisions, doing things. But I think it was that third young man who really impacted me the most and in and, and sort of a quiet voice with his head down a little bit. And he said, you know, I haven't seen my father in a while. He's been in jail. Mm. Now, I can tell you, I'd heard those stories time and time again. We've all heard those stories. We've read them. We've seen them on the news. But there was something about being in that room with them at that moment in time and having them share, being a little vulnerable and share with me some of the uh, adverse childhood experiences, the traumas they'd gone through that really had an impact. Mm. And so I, I, I literally left there saying, I've, I've got to learn more about what goes into the makeup and the lives of these young men. And, and as I did that, that's where I learned more about the ACE science and about trauma. And, and, and it sort of all of a sudden, it was like somebody, you know, shown a, a, a big bright light on the problem. And it just or it was like that puzzle piece that was mis- missing from the puzzle that you're trying to, to put together. It's like this is. The reason why we continue to see the same people over and over again Mm. from the same families, the same communities, the same issues, and nothing ever changes. Mm. It's always the poverty. It's always the violence. It's always the lack of resources. And and we just know where those communities are. And it's like, why? Why is that? Mm. And for me, it was this a better understanding of how trauma and it affected their lives, shaped their lives. Uh, and, and then I realized that it, it just isn't those who are in poverty. It just isn't, aren't those who are in the, in the, the poor parts of town or have the bigger problems. 
the adverse childhood experiences and that childhood trauma affects people regardless of their background, regardless of de demographics. It could be poor oh, well, or, or so. rich or, or urban mm. or rural or uh, it, it could well-educated or un it, it didn't matter. We've all experienced that to some extent. And then I won't go into the research. You know it better than I, but it just was pervasive. Uh, and I didn't understand it. And, and, and I knew my colleagues and friends didn't. So it was then I started trying to share what I was finding uh, with the people in the criminal justice system and, and, and who I worked with. And I realized that I'm having problems engaging people and uh, building that trust. And I'm seeing other people really not trusting others. And, and I started putting the two and two together and realizing that for a lot of those poor relationships, it was the unaddressed trauma that was affecting it. Mm. And, I, and I started thinking about the leadership. You know, again, I like to think in the leadership of an organization like the FBI, it's pretty good. You know, we the best and the brightest uh, come to the top. And I look back and I go, yeah, not so much. <laughs> you know, why is that? Uh, why do we have so many leadership books? Why do we have so much leadership training going on? And we still do the same problems over and over again. And the one thing I wasn't hearing uh, was how trauma affected our ability as leaders and as followers, employees in that relationship where you've got to have trust between the leadership and the employees. And so for me, that was where, you know, again, it took a couple of years. It started coming together. But even then I walked away going, OK, what do I really want to tell you? I, you know, OK, trust is a problem because of trauma. But but how do we fix it? Or we just be nicer to people, you mm. know, we just have a little bit more empathy and, and, and patience. And then, yes, those are important. But that's where I came across Dr. Hellman's work on the science of hope and the framework around hope. And I realized, ah, that that's the piece that was missing for me as I try to explain people to people how to to really make a difference and put all this together in a meaningful way. Do you, I, I think that's really beautiful. And I also think that um, trust, lack of trust can also create trauma. So yeah. if you, as a leader, have had an adverse childhood experience or whatever it happens to be, and you can't build trust because you don't have it in yourself, you can traumatize other people through your interaction um, because you you are not exhibiting a safe environment because you've grown up in an environment or experienced an environment that is unsafe where that trust was missing. Uh, and I don't think we pay enough credence to that relationship between the two. Right. You know, you, you have to have you have to have trust in order to build good relationships um irrespective and i think you know dr gabor mate i don't mm -hmm. he's done a beautiful video wisdom of trauma a beautiful film where he gets the inmates uh, in in the us they ask questions they're all standing in a circle right. uh, and they ask questions around childhood adverse childhood experiences have you ever experienced uh, uh, and the majority of, of the inmates that are there have experienced trauma yep. to one degree or many degrees. You know, <laughs> they keep stepping in uh, and you see that, that, you know, many people step into that inner circle because they've had many layers of trauma. Uh, uh, and 
you know, if we think of trauma as like a seed, the earlier the seed is planted, the more opportunity mm. it has to grow. Uh, and if you keep exposing a, a child or, or a, a young adult to the same or similar traumatic event or experience, that seed will take root uh, and the tree will get stronger and stronger and stronger and the more branches it will have. Yep. So the harder it is to remove the trauma because you, you, if you've got the wrong therapy, you will cut down one branch but you won't remove the root. So the seed is still, you know, the seed is still there, the tree is still there and yeah. it's still growing. And it's really important that we take the time to find out where the root is uh, so that we can remove it um, and, and let, uh, you know, release people from from the, the emotional, the physical the mental or the spiritual pain that, that that trauma has caused them and allow them to recalibrate their brain back to a, a new normal, much like COVID. That's it's right. getting us back to yeah. a new, calmer, peace, peaceful normal that that we can live with. You know, we can live with ourselves. And, we, and I think COVID is a really, you know, poignant example is that need to have trust in people uh, that need to have trust that people will protect each other, uh, and it's not you know all, all for yourself. And oh, I'm not going to do this because uh, because I, I don't want it. I don't I don't believe in it. it. It's about the survival of your group, your family, your tribe, your and ultimately the human <laughs> the human race. That's right. You know, uh, from a big picture perspective, uh, uh, and in order to do that we have to build trust that people will do what's right uh, to support support the team whatever that team yep. concept may may be how how, how do the people that you coach and uh, consult um, deal with this concept of trauma because i know people see it as a you know oh this isn't my problem but actually it's everybody's problem because we all have a role to play in helping people let go of trauma and also minimizing the trauma that we we could potentially inflict on others through yeah. our behaviors you know when i talk to leaders um i usually will talk about some of uh dr Brene brown's work mm -hmm. she's very popular right oh, she talks yeah. about she talks about vulnerability and we talk mm -hmm. about this idea that that we that leaders need to be more vulnerable. And of course, that scares us, right? We're talking, well, yeah. you know, vulnerable. I got. I don't want to be more vulnerable. I'm supposed to be a strong leader. And so she does a great job of explaining uh, that vulnerability is not a weakness. It's but a I, strength. It is a strength. And, and really so when you, <laughs> it is. And when you talk about it, it it's interesting. In her book uh, that that she wrote, uh, Daring Greatly, uh, yeah. she talks about uh, hope in there for mm -hmm. a page or two. Uh, and so what I do, and, and, and it's almost like a light bulb moment sort of going off. And I use vulnerability in something that people generally are open to because it's, it's, she does a great job of, of helping us understand. I say, well, you know, when you're more vulnerable, you're able to build that relationship of trust with people because you're more yeah. authentic and you're sharing and, and you're doing things. I said, and, and all the literature says that 
And you would agree, right, that we want to, as leaders, create a safe, stable and nurturing environment in our work environment. Oh, yeah, 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 we need to do that. And I said, and we want to build relationships because that's important for people to have relationships. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's great, too. I said, OK, well, let's talk about what keeps us from individually being vulnerable and from and, and, it, and keeps us from building some of those relationships. And, you know, it doesn't take long to sort of uh, find an event in their past. Again, usually their childhood yeah. where they were. They were conditioned early on that this is how a child behaves. This is how a child reacts. This is what you say and don't say. This is how you're supposed to respond. And all of a sudden, when they get to the workplace, when they become leaders and they they see they engage with people, something triggers that immediate response that all of a sudden they've got to be, you know, you know, hard and fast. It's like, well, what happened to being vulnerable and sharing and being open? And, you know, now you're. Oh, okay. So it was something in my past that triggered my response today. Absolutely. So I can talk about trauma in a way that isn't always heavy, isn't always traumatic because I'm trying to, I start first with talking to you about things that, that leadership in general leaders, you know, that we discuss things that we're a little bit more comfortable with, like the vulnerability, like engagement and building relationships, like the need for trust. Uh, but I always have to go back and say, well, what triggers us in our inability to build that trust? Mm. Yeah, it's, what, it's that trauma. It's that it's what it, we experienced early in life. Mm. OK, well, how do I change that? Now you're asking the right questions. How yeah. do I change that? And so that's how I approach it. And then generally, like I said, with the with the individuals I, I've worked with, it is sort of that light bulb moment. Now, it may take a little bit of time to sort of really wrestle with it, but if they're open to it, they'll come to realize that, yes, I need to see the world differently. I need to sort of shift my paradigm. Uh, and yes, let's talk more about what we can do to build those safe environments and to build the relationships that we need mm-hmm. to, to be successful, no matter how you define success. If it's better team performance, if it's if it's better selling uh, because you're salespeople, it, whatever, how, almost however you define success at the heart of it, there's some type of trust issue if you're not really seeing it the way you want to see it. Uh, and so I'm able to talk to people in that way. Mm. Uh, do you know, I think that's really important. I think, you know, we have to trust the environment to be vulnerable. Uh, you know, it's, it's fundamental that we, we have to trust that it is a safe place. And as soon as people say, oh, it's safe, and it, and it turns out it isn't, which happened to me in the corporate world. Oh, yes, tell, tell us what you, you know, give us your inner thoughts and how we can change the organisation. It's a safe environment. Nothing goes outside these four walls. And the very next day I get a telephone call from a partner who wasn't even there berating <laughs> me for expressing myself. Right. You know, it, you have to, and that completely, you know, at that point, there was no trust. I could trust right. no one right. in the organization because it was eroded by a, a director in the firm. And I think it's important that we create that. It's so important to create that environment to, to build trust, isn't it? So we can express our vulnerabilities uh, and know it's not going to go back against us. And often the leaders have put their de- defenses up and they think this is how I need to behave this is the persona I have to give out whereas in inside 
you know, it's like an armadillo that really hard on the outside and just really vulnerable and soft and squidgy on the, yeah. in the middle. Um, and they're afraid to express themselves if because I, of the consequences. And, and, and again, if I ask you or any of your, your listeners or viewers to say, have you ever had a great leader? They invariably will say yes, because they had a lot of bad leaders. And when you yeah. discuss with them, what is it that made that person somebody you really uh, appreciated, respected, that you wanted to follow? Trust is one of the words that always comes out. Yeah, I trusted them. Trust. And so, you know, you look at the organizations and you look at these these toxic relationships and and why are we building a relation? Why are we building an organization that fosters a lack of trust? Mm. Why would we engage in activities that are going to encourage people to break trust? Because that's how you get ahead. That's how you make a sale. That's how you do better. That's how you get yourself. Yeah. Above exactly. somebody else. Yeah. And, and, and instead, if we really, and Jim Collins in his book, uh, good to great talks about that level five leader. Who's able to step off to the side and really appreciate and admire and encourage, uh, his, uh, followers, his employees. Well, I assure you that the only way a leader is going to be able to do that is if he not only trusts himself, but has built trust in his relationship and frankly is at peace with who he or she is and who their employees are. It's only then uh, that you can really move from good to great uh, and sustain yeah. greatness uh, yeah. in many ways. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, that I spent a lot of time unfortunately in many ways late in my career before i realized the connection and so then i i retired but uh it's been a since i retired that i've been you know sort of preaching this gospel as we say that you know trauma trust and the science of hope is really uh what i think is foundational in in being not only a, a person that you can respect and be respected but that you can mm. work for a respectful organization and mm. i, I I know we're sort of kind of running a little bit out of time and we haven't even got on to the science of hope, which I'm really fascinated about. So I'd love to have you come back if, if, if you would like to later and we can talk about that again. I'd, I'd love to do that. Yes. Uh, but just, just quickly, could you, could you just summarize what the science of hope is to, is to the listeners? What, what is so fundamentally important about, about hope? I just think it is just massively important. I, I think the important piece there is that it's an empowering framework. So Dr. Hellman, uh, the way he summarized hopes, defines hope is hope is the belief that tomorrow can be better than today and that you have the power to make it so. So if we stopped at the fact that tomorrow can be better than today. That's just wishful thinking. Well, I just hope tomorrow's better. I hope I can't be any worse than today. I hope it gets better. And, and we see that we just wish things were better, but with his framework, that goes back for decades, even before him, around the idea of goals, pathways, and willpower. When we see that and work through that framework on a regular basis, then we can build that hope. And so if we want to build trust, there's a framework of, and a strategy for doing that that's centered around the science of hope that allows us uh, to build the things that we're looking for to accomplish the goals that we're setting, uh, to be the people that we want to be, uh, and eventually be at peace. Yeah. Uh, do you know, it's really powerful. And I, we had a, a previous guest, Amy Kardashian, 
who was on the show who experienced major trauma and she said hope is having open possibilities every day uh, and not closing those doors down not you know keeping an open mind that, yeah, that it's, it's definitely a way of thinking. It's a cognitive way of thinking. And, and and we'll spend some other time talking about the amygdala and other things that you mentioned yeah. earlier. This hope is a protective factor against that stress, that burnout, that anxiety uh, that, that we've been looking for for a long time. And it's a greater predictor than just even resilience or mindfulness, or other things. And and that's why, again, why I talk about it and, and include it as part of the work I do, uh, because it provides that complete picture. Yeah, I, I think that's just absolutely, I'm really excited to <laughs> further conversations. But the, the key theme on this was talking about trust yeah. uh, and how trust, you know, is so vitally important following uh, people who've had traumas to build uh, or rebuild the trust that may have been lost and, and to help people um, create the environment so that that trust can be nurtured and the bank can be uh, filled up with 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 money trust money again yeah. what what would be your one piece of advice for somebody who really has feels from a relationship perspective that they have no trust in, in people following their, li their life experiences what would be your one piece of advice to them yeah, I think I've got to go back to the hope definition, right? Because when we've got to the point where we don't know how to trust, when we're scared of trust, when we are worried about our relationships, when everything has gone wrong, uh, then we sort of fall into that idea or the trap that it's always going to be wrong. And we start seeing, mm. you know, despair and hopelessness come about. But it's with hope that we can, in a cognitive way of thinking that we can understand that tomorrow will be better, not can be better again, optimism, but will be better. But, and that we have the power to do it. And so if people want to build that trust and they're open to the idea of learning, then we can learn trust because we can learn hope. And if we can learn hope, that means we can teach hope. And so mm -hmm. it's not just, I learn it, but I can teach it. And if I can teach it, then we can spread it. And if we can spread hope throughout uh, not only our environment, our communities, our businesses, then we can start to spread hope throughout our countries uh, in a way that's not just wishful thinking, but that can truly make a difference in the lives of people. Wow, Christopher, that, I think that's really powerful. And my goodness, don't we need more people like yourselves to, to be able to instill that hope in, in others and, and to share that message of hope as well? How, how can people get hold of you if they want to learn more about yourself? So I think the best way is sort of visit my website. It's mrchrisfreeze.com. Uh, I'm also, I do a lot of work on LinkedIn. Not I do a little bit of Facebook and a little bit of Twitter, Instagram, but really most of my work is on uh, LinkedIn, uh, which I found to be a better platform for this. So I encourage you, you can send me a message through my uh, website, uh, or you can send me a message uh, through LinkedIn, and, and I'd be happy to respond and, and help in any way I can. Yeah, thank you, and and do make sure that you you reach out to Christopher. He's, he's a fountain of knowledge, and and obviously that knowledge is growing as he, he he's going back here to rebuild his his learned career as right. PhD. So I'm sure the more people that you know connect with you and you can learn from the just uh, amazing uh, superpower in yourself to really make a difference and 
help uh, instill change and hope in others. So thank you uh, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Um, just thank you for your wisdom and, and for inspiring hope in others. Well, thank you, Ruth. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to take on, undertake this great endeavor to share how to have a stronger and healthier brain and, and why that's so important. It's been a, a pleasure for me to be uh, a guest today, and, and I'm grateful for, for that and for your service. So thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. And just remember all that this is the show Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. You are not stuck with the brain you have. You can make it better. And we are here to support you in unchaining, unlocking and unleashing your full potential. This broadcast is brought to you by WinCheck Studios. We are an all-in-one educational platform for podcasters that revolutionizes how hosts leverage content to increase engagement with listeners, downloads and income. We come together to focus on community, collaboration, and collective impact. For more information on how you can interact directly with our hosts, access exclusive live content with offers you can't get anywhere else from our official partners, join our purpose-driven community by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there.